Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. This special two-part season finale, entitled Joyeux le Départ, is sponsored by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing and features the music of Victor and the Bully. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Come with me and conquer time. Transmigration journeys expand. When last we saw our heroes, they had just returned from a jazzy jaunt to the future. The time away did wonders for the professor's mood, and the denizens of the laboratory have regained an equilibrium that had been sorely missing. Harmony once again resides in the glass-roofed attic of King's College. Although, it has not slipped the doctor's notice that the menagerie seems to be expanding. Abigail, is that a monkey? Oh! Yes, a spider monkey from South America. Isn't he divine? And why do we suddenly have a monkey? Professor Chalmers brought Oscar back from South America, but then didn't want to invest the time necessary to properly take care of him. Mm-hmm. Oscar? Mm-hmm. His name's Oscar Wilde. Evidently, Professor Chalmers also maintains the habit of naming his animals after famous English writers. He has a poodle named Charles Dickens and a parrot named William Shakespeare. But his literary aspirations aside, Max Chalmers' animal husbandry practice is appalling. I couldn't bear the squalor I found poor Oscar living in. I convinced the professor that I could find him a better home. I suppose that is all right, as long as he is kept confined to the menagerie. I cannot have him out and about interfering with my equipment. I shall be sure to keep Oscar safely away from the equipment. Hello, pet. Hello, Erasmus. Mix and Twistle, how are your friends this fine morning? Hello, Professor. Full of vim and vigor. You certainly are in a cheerful mood today. <laughs> yes, I've just come from the quad where Dean Stewart was giving Cunningham a right rollicking. Such a delightful way to begin the day. 
Is Cunningham still trying to dissuade the Dean on rational dress? Yes, indeed. He seems to be of the impression that he can win her back to the right way of thinking by raising his volume, slowing his speech, and looking down his nose at her. It's patently not working since Dean Stewart insists on using logic and sound argument. Abigail, is that a monkey? Yes, Yes. we seem to have acquired a monkey. Whatever is that racket? That is our new voice pipe system at work. Voice pipe? But don't those involve a great deal of shouting into a funnel to be heard? Typically, yes, but a few tweaks to the system using the same principles that are... Sorry, Erasmus. It seems he's not going away. I'd best go down and see what he is on about. Setting aside her calculations, the doctor takes the elevator to the lower laboratory, exits her private chamber, and scurries across the floor to open the door before the provost has a complete conniption. Provost! What a delightful surprise. What brings you to my laboratory this fine spring morning? I have come to make a final appeal to your decency. If we do not band together and stop her, Dean Stewart is going to institute rational dress, and I fear that kings will never recover. I do not mean to cause offense, Mix Cunningham, but why in the world do you think I would come down on your side of this argument? Oh, I know very well where your sentiments lie, Dr. Sage. I am not asking you to speak your conscience. I am simply suggesting that should you wish to keep your advantageous position in this laboratory, that you assist in this matter. After all, uh, since the surgical trials have thus far proven it is not my fault if the surgical department cannot reattach a limb correctly. If I were to be allowed to take the scalpel, I might be uh, able now, to. Now, Doctor Sage, you know that I have put this matter into the hands of Doctor McNeish. If he chooses to declare your research a dead end, there is little I can do about it. Uh, furthermore, should you be so unwise as to express support for Dean Stewart's ridiculous proposals, then I cannot vouch for the security of your ongoing position here at King's. Now, Provost, I am certain you did not intend to imply Dr. Sage's academic standing could in any way be threatened by our honest opinion on the matter of rational dress. Well, I... no, I... Furthermore, I am also quite certain that your rhetorical prowess needs no bolstering from the ranks of junior doctors, even one so promising as Dr. Sage. Well, no, of course not, but... And finally, as I am sure you know, the period for commentary closes this morning at ten. We'll each get one final chance to make our case in front of the Board of Regents before the decision is taken. I am confident they will give the matter proper consideration. Aren't you? Of course I trust the Board of Regents. What a thing to ask! Well then. Yes, quite. Uh, Dean Stewart, Dr. Sage. (laughs) That was not quite the welcome I'd imagined for the first time I've come to your laboratory. I'm terribly sorry. Mix Cunningham and I have a difficult relationship at the best of times. Mix Cunningham and the world seem to have a difficult relationship. No matter. Now, 
I'd like you to walk me through your lab and tell me what clothing adjustments would make for the safest and most conducive apparel during galvanization experiments. When the doctor and the dean have finished their conversation, Sage returns to the upper laboratory to prepare the trio for transmigration. In order to accommodate Abigail's schedule, they have set the recall for 56 hours. Just a quick weekend jaunt to another time and space. Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage. May Day, 1895. Today we are planning a casual little jaunt to the late Renaissance era, Central Europe. I've set the recall timer for 56 hours, which should give us a lovely weekend of discovery. Transmigrating with me are Professor Erasmus Savant, as always, and my assistant and friend, Mix Abigail Entwistle. Where will they end up? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the steampunk, swing, electropunk, mariachi, classical, carnival music expressions of Victor and the Bully.
And now, back to our story. Our heroes have found themselves in Antwerp, 1635, on the eve of the Joyeux Entrée, or joyous entry of the Cardinal Infante Ferdinand. Also known as Don Fernando de Austria, Cardinal Infante Fernando de España, and as Ferdinand von Austerreich, the governor of the Spanish Netherlands. There are members of our audience who might be surprised to hear that Spain governed over this little slice of Belgium, but the fact is, dear listeners, that the major monarchies of Europe were constantly apportioning land and cities, whether through war, through diplomacy, or through marriage. And Antwerp had been such a powerhouse of international trade and business that she made of herself a target too rich to resist. But you are not here for a history lesson. Hmm. Where are we? In bed, it appears. Is anyone injured? Uh, no, we all seem to be intact. I wonder what killed us. Sickness of some kind. There's a bit of a sour smell. Hmm, yes. That would explain the headache. Some type of flu. High fevers, aches, chills. The overly heavy bed linens would attest to that. Never mind that. Why are we three all in bed together? Co-sleeping was once far more common than it is in our time. The need for warmth in the night, the smaller nature of the houses, the rarity and expensive nature of bed furniture were all factors that led to the practicality of one larger bed that the family could share. You are sure we are family? Uh, Judging by the fact that Petronella has bright blonde hair and appears to be in her mid-twenties, and that you have the same exact shade, matching facial contours and eye color, and appear to be five or six years old, it all points to a familial connection, yes. Wait, I'm a child. I wonder if there's a mirror. And what about you, dear? You have sandy brown hair and a pointed beard. (laughs) Does that make you family? I admit that correlation does not imply causation, (laughs) but one would assume that I am the husband to the one and father to the other. Abigail climbs out of bed to try and find a reflective surface. Sage and the professor follow, intrigued to find themselves in a lovely multi-story home with elegant furnishings and incredible paintings on the walls. Anyone else feeling a bit peaky? We'd best find some food. It's likely that whatever illness killed these bodies died with them, so we should be able to eat something and regain some strength. Oh my goodness, I look like someone in a painting. It seems Abigail has found a mirror. Let's get a look at ourselves and then we can find some food. And in fact, once all three are standing in front of the large gilded mirror in the hall, the tableau that presents itself is straight out of the Flemish Baroque. Their pale, narrow faces, voluminous bedclothes, the opulent setting of the house, the reflection of the bowl of flowers and fruit on the table behind them. Fruit! Ah, we should eat! Yes, and then go exploring. They each pull a piece of fruit from the bowl and set about finding clothes. Ah, Judging by this doublet and hose, we are indeed in the late Renaissance, certainly pre-restoration period. I don't suppose there's any way to discover who we are. Until we meet someone that can tell us, no. It was not common in this time to keep papers of identification, and we're not likely to find letterhead of any sort. I wonder why there are no servants. Surely a house this large would have staff. Mm, I would assume that they've been banned from the house due to sickness. We may find the front door locked as a quarantine measure. This will depend on whether the sickness that carried this family away is abroad or not. We 
there's so many layers to put on. It's like I'm expected to wear three dresses at the same time. Talk about irrational twists. When they had conquered the many complicated layers of clothing and were dressed at last, they made their way to the front door, which was indeed locked with no key in evidence. A short search netted a ring of keys on a peg in the kitchen, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and a handbill proclaiming the joyous entry of Don Fernando de Austria. The professor filled them in on what good fortune this was as they unlocked the door and stepped out into a broad cobbled boulevard bracketed on both sides by tall gabled buildings. We're in Antwerp. Oh, this is delightful. Antwerp was once the richest city in Europe, center of a vast trade network for spices from the New World. Silver and diamonds and cloth and textiles. Oh, they're still the center of the diamond trade. What good fortune it is to be here on the day of the joyous entry. I'm sorry, Professor, but history was my weakest subject. Is Don Fernando the King of Belgium? Not exactly. He was an infanta, the son of Philip III of Spain and Margaret of Austria. His official title, if I recall correctly, was Governor. He was a monarch in all but name and would be afforded the pomp and circumstances do such. And in fact, turning the corner of their boulevard, they are presented with a glorious spectacle of pomp and circumstance. Every building is draped with bunting. Gigantic pots of flowers adorn every available surface and ledge. Small fireworks pop in the distance, and children run frantically past, screaming and laughing in their excitement for the occasion. Oh, I want to run and play tea. I haven't been this excited for a parade since I was a wee girl. <laughs> I hate to be the one to break it to you, Abigail, but you are a wee girl. Oh, yes. Can I go play, please? Yes, but wait a minute. We all need to take a look around, notice the landmarks so we can find our way back to the house. Oh, that giant pot of red tulip should do the trick. Not at all. Those are decorations for the joyous entry. They might get taken down once the Infanta has gone past. What about that house with the bright yellow bunting? I bet you can see that from Same miles. problems. You want to look for landmarks that cannot be moved or changed quickly. Hmm. See those tall buildings to our left? The ones with the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven peaks. Those are the ones. Now, see the building in that row with all the fancy balconies? Yes. Good. Now take a moment to lock this view in mind. Then, if you get lost, look to the row of tall buildings, walk until you have this view. And now tell me, which way from here to the house? Um... Uh... Oh, goodness. All right, let me walk you back to the door of our house. Count your steps. You ladies go ahead. I'll be right here. Erasmus, you should come too. How will you find your way home? Why, I'll stay glued to your side, pet. You'll get me home. Shaking her head at his incomplete logic, Sage takes Abigail's hand and helps her count her steps back to the house. When they return to the square, Abigail skips off to play with the other children, and Sage looks for her professor. As usual, she simply scans to find the most enthusiastic person, and that is him. Funny how she has begun to look past the differences in appearance of the body and see the true man underneath. Sage hurries to join Savant. How long before Don Fernando arrives? Oh, they say his ship arrived on the Scheldt and the disembarkation has begun. I imagine we'll see the first members of the parade party soon. 
as if to punctuate his words, a bank of fanfare trumpets heralds the joyeux entre of the Cardinal Infante Fernando de España, followed by a clatter of hooves foretelling the arrival of the first courtiers. The crowd cheers lustily as rank after rank of beautifully dressed men on dazzling horses parade by. Following the nobles, trying hard not to look inconvenienced as they step past piles of horse dung, a host of city dignitaries in somber Protestant black. Is Antwerp a Protestant city? Officially, no. They are Catholic, as are all the cities of the Holy Roman Empire. But Protestantism runs deep through the countryside. Ferdinand's joyous entry in Antwerp was in 1635, so we're toward the end of the Counter-Reformation and the Dutch Revolt ended in 1648, but the Low Countries had long before capitulated. So I'm sure all those men are staunchly Catholic, at least for official appearances. Religious wars are a messy business. They watched as wave after wave of finely dressed people went by until finally, in a cushion of space designed to call attention, Ferdinand himself rode by on a huge black horse. He had a long, narrow face, unfortunately besmirched with the Habsburg nose. His hair was a nearly clear brown, like a highland stream in autumn. His eyes, small and wide-set, glanced over the crowd, indifferent to their response. And to be honest, the crowd seemed no more impressed with the Infanta than with the other people in the parade. Mostly, it appeared the Joyeux Entrée served as an excuse to decorate the city and indulge in heavy drinking. Petronella! Oh, Asmus! Petwa! Oh, my goodness! Abigail, whatever's the matter? Come quickly! There is a man planning to assassinate the Cardinal! What do you mean, assassinate? I heard them. I heard them talking. We were playing under the stage where they will give the keys of the city to the Cardinal. I heard two men plotting to assassinate him. Come on! And without waiting to see if they are following, Abigail sprints off behind the backs of the crowd watching the parade. They follow the flash of blonde hair, the bonnet she was wearing having been discarded someplace, and watch the procession pass by in reverse. First the cardinal, then the alderman, and finally the courtiers. When they pass the front of the procession, Abigail darts out across the boulevard and heads toward the center square, calling over her shoulder. Come on! Hurry! They hurry to follow her into the square, where a platform has been erected and decorated for the occasion. Running to the back of the stage, Abigail lifts the bunting and scurries underneath. Sage and Savant do their best to follow. So what do we do? How do we stop the man from murdering the Cardinal? Do you know who it is? Can you point him out to us? No, I only heard him. I didn't see him. Well, I'm not exactly sure we should try to stop him anyway. Remember, rule. Before the doctor can complete her thought, Petra! She collapses. Dr. C! At first, her friends believe she has fainted, but as the professor reaches out and scoops her into his arms, he realizes. She's gone. She was recalled somehow. A stunned Erasmus clutches the body just vacated by Petra. He tries to tell himself that she is not dead, but simply recalled to her own body. And yet, there is no way for him to be certain of that fact. It is a very disconcerting feeling. In spite of his logical brain, he finds himself fighting tears. Petra. Oh, Petra. But if she was recalled, why were we not also taken? What? Pardon me? Why were we not recalled to the lab alongside the doctor? If the 
timing mechanism failed, why were we not all free we called? <gasps> Are we stuck here? Do I have to live my childhood all over again? How will we live? What will we do? In a strange way, Abigail's panic helps the professor pull it together. Abigail, cease this babbling. Dr. Sage has not failed us yet. If there was a malfunction of the equipment, then she will repair it and call us home. We have nothing to worry about. Petra is not dead. She is home. We are not in danger, but the Cardinal is. His calm words helped Abigail get control of herself. The professor laid the body of the woman who had hosted his friend neatly to the side and turned his full attention to the girl. What do you think the doctor was trying to tell us? I mean, she said the word woo... Rule? Did she mean the rules of transmigration? Why would she bring those up now? I think she was trying to tell us not to change history. Rule number one, no transmigratory scientist shall knowingly interfere with the course of history. But I know for a fact that the Cardinal was not assassinated. In fact, there isn't even a reported attempt in the historical record. Which there would be if there had truly been a threat. We can relax. The assassination won't happen. Unless the reason it didn't happen was because we were here to stop it. How can that be? We were not here. You already studied this. Oh, it's a paradox. Uh, an impossibility. Uh, imagine for a moment that we do nothing. The assassin is free to kill the Cardinal. That would invalidate the knowledge I have as the past has changed from what I know. By not interfering to stop the assassination we know did not happen, we broke the strictures of rule number one. Yes, the, the past would be changed through our inaction. Yes, that is what I think too. Perhaps this conspirator does not make a move and thereby history does not record an assassination attempt, but... If we stop him before he can bring his plans to fruition, then history also does not record it. The only way we can ensure history stays unchanged is to act. Do oh. you agree? Paradox makes my head hurt. We will leave our heroes as they ponder how to stop an assassination attempt and pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello listeners, Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I like stories that ignite my imagination, make me think about the world in new ways, and that inspire me to build a future world. This is the kind of fiction I strive to write, and this is the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment including book one of the Tales of Sage and Savant, Transmigrations, in both print and pixels. Look for books with the Edge logo at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. Find your next great read at www.edgewebsite.com. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing brings new worlds to your doorstep. And now, back to our show. Dr. Sage awakens in a state of supreme confusion. One... Uh, uh, Erasmus? The laboratory is filled with a cacophony of bird calls, chitterings, whistles, and screeches. 
Sage looks to her left and sees the forms of Abigail and the professor still in the transmigrated state. She was the only one to return. She wonders why as she tilts her slab upright and unbuckles the restraints. In the whirlwind of noise, it takes the doctor a moment to realize the cause of such outrageous behavior from the usually placid creatures of the menagerie. A screech directly overhead calls her attention upwards to the pavilion of prayer bowls suspended in the gantry. Five of the bowls are untouched with clubs suspended above the rims of their clockwork arms. The sixth bowl, however, is tilted slightly under the weight of Abigail's new spider monkey, who has pulled the club free of its clockwork arm and is waving it about like a madman, making bone-chilling screeches that echo along the glass ceiling and obviously agitate the rest of the menagerie. Why, you little trickster! You are the reason I'm home early, hmm? Oh, I suggest you come down from there at once. I don't want you mucking about with my equipment. This is exactly what I cautioned your master. I would not allow. As she spoke, Sage considered her options for bringing the creature down. Other than horse and hound, she had no experience with animals, and she sensed that this monkey would lead her a merry chase if she let it. She crossed to the menagerie cage, hoping to find Abigail's bag of treats in order to tempt the creature out of the rafters and safely back into its cage. She would have to have words with the young scientist about better securing the animal. These ruminations were interrupted by the sound of the elevator arriving. For the flash of a second, Petra thought to turn and greet Erasmus and demand that he help her catch the recalcitrant monkey. But even as that idea flashed across her awareness, she realized that it could not be Erasmus in the elevator, and that meant trouble. She turned to face the lift. You! How did you find this laboratory? How have you hidden this you laboratory be from here. us? This should be a Why did you come here? What is that horrible racket? It can be heard all across the campus! And suddenly, the full import of what has happened slams into Petra. The damn monkey was messing with her equipment and managed to bring her home, but not her friends. The noise the cursed creature was making had attracted the notice of the provost, who now had seen her secret laboratory. Uh, provost Cunningham, I can explain, but I think first I'd better capture that monkey. Without saying another word, Sage found the bag of treats and tempted the monkey out of the rafters and back into the cage. As soon as the greedy little thing had a pile of treats, it stopped screeching, and the rest of the denizens of the menagerie also began to settle. Cunningham wasted no time in filling the void. Dr. Sage, I demand an explanation. What is this laboratory? Who gave you approval for such an elaborate space? Why was this kept secret from me? What is that hideous thing you are wearing? Dr. Sage looked down at herself, overwhelmed by the barrage of questions and startled at the inanity of the last one, thinking perhaps this was some objection to rational dress. It is Faraday armor. It prevents electrical burns. Mix Cunningham, how did you find my elevator? Your elevator? Your elevator? What gives you the right to have an elevator in your sleeping room? So you admit to entering my sleeping closet? That is a clear violation of university standard practices. That may be so, but you shan't derail me quite so easily. It is I who has questions, and I who demand that you answer them. How do you come by this laboratory? Les Chargés de la Faire, of course. 
I have monitored that budget closely. There is no way you paid for this out of that money. It was all necessary for the electrical expenditure. There was no overage. They set me up with my own line of credit. They're really quite keen on my research and sense that you were reticent to allow me full access to college resources. They simply made sure I was able to continue my research unimpeded by politics. Politics? How dare you? I do not know what you are up to here, Petronella Sage, but you can be assured I will put a stop to it. Perhaps it was the monkey. Perhaps the fact that she had been brought back alone without the steadying influence of her friends. Perhaps it was the smug officiousness of Cunningham himself. But no matter what the cause, the doctor's sense of reason snapped. Wait! Mix Cunningham, come back. Don't go. Now that you are here, I realize I should have shared the full import of my work with you long ago. Let me at least show you around and explain the full scope of my work here. At least you will have an idea of what you will be passing up on, should you decide to shut down my laboratory. If that calm statement made you breathe a sigh of relief, dear listeners, I am sorry to inform you that the doctor's outward calm is simply the manifestation of a woman who has examined her options and chosen an irreversible course of action. Ignoring the provost's marked hostility, Sage brought him to the center platform where her friends lay insensible on their slabs. Whatever have you done to Professor Savant and Miss Entwistle? Mix! Uh, for once and for all, her honorific is Mix. And I have done nothing to them. They have voluntarily joined my research and undergone a simple procedure I call transmigration. Their consciousnesses are currently in 1635, observing the joyous entry of the Cardinal Infanta of Antwerp. Like me, dear listeners, you must be shocked to hear the doctor offer seeds of truth to Cunningham, knowing that they will fall on barren soil. You are a mad woman. I shall report this to the Board of Regents, and they will not only strip you of your doctorate, they will banish you from the halls of academia entirely! What I can see, and that you cannot, is that while the doctor distracted the provost, she has worked loose from her recently unbuckled slab one of the copper leads that connects directly to the dynamo overhead. As she explains the process of transmigration to the skeptical functionary, she powers up the dynamo. The energy whirls and tumbles in the glass overhead as she demonstrates the setting of the Cladney and explains her targeting procedure. For his part, Cunningham is certain he is gleaning the information needed to cement the permanent removal of Dr. Sage and her troublesome attitudes from the Halls of Kings once and for all. When Sage has stalled long enough for the electricity to build to the proper fever pitch, Petra stretches forth the copper lead and touches it to the brachial nerves at the base of Cunningham's neck. The electrocuted provost drops like a stone, and the doctor follows with the lead, keeping the arc of electricity connected until the Cladney tone rings out. She powers down the dynamo and slumps to the floor next to the provost's unconscious body, searching for a pulse in the artery under his chin. Don't be dead. Don't be dead. He is not dead, though heaven only knows where she has sent him. Petra sits in a slump on the floor, her heart pounding and her thoughts racing. Oh, he'll believe me now. He'll have to believe me. And once he believes me, he won't want to shut down my lab and banish me, will he? Oh, God, Erasmus, I need you. Petra rises and is about to ring the bells to bring her friends home when a horrible thought hits her. <gasps> I can't bring you home. 
If I sound the Aeolian mode now, you will come home and Abigail and Cunningham. Oh, I can't bring him back until I'm sure he will let me continue my research. Will the doctor retrieve the provost from his jaunt to the past? Will Erasmus be able to help Petra save her research? Will Cunningham carry out his terrible threats? We'll find out in part two of Joyeux le Depart, coming on May 15th. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was provided by Victor and the Bully. Check them out at victorandthebully.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, our partner, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Buy our book, Transmigrations, available on Amazon now. Episode 210A, Joyeux le Depart, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. And finally, as always, dear listeners, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science. <laughs>